Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Melt Hammer podcast. It's episode 178. I am Mel from Melt Hammer. Hope you're doing all right out there. I am so excited about this week's episode. It's one of the biggest we've ever done because we are talking to the man, the myth, the Metallica legend, Jason Newstead, is on the podcast this week. Really, really great stuff. It's a big interview that I think you'll enjoy very, very much indeed. But before we get to all that, I should, of course, remind you that the latest issue of Metal Hammer magazine is out right now. Iron Maiden, the best heavy metal band of all time, are back on the cover of Metal Hammer. First time in three years as we get excited about Senjutsu. World-exclusive interview with the band. Uh, that album is now just a number of days away. So if you want to get yourself even more hyped for the arrival of Senjutsu, go pick up the latest issue of Metal Hammer. It comes with a giant Senjutsu poster. It comes with fridge magnets. I've got them on my fridge right now. They look badass. It comes with a Belshazzar's Art Feast art print as well. So much stuff bundled with this special edition, latest issue of Metal Hammer. Get it in shops across the land or go to tinyurl.com slash gethammer to get it sent directly to your door. That's tinyurl.com slash gethammer. We've got a limited amount of stock online. Once it's gone, it is gone. So do not mess around. Uh, I also want to shout out our awesome sponsors, Killstar. Go over to killstar.com to check out all their latest ranges. They've got clothing, they've got homeware, they've got bedswear. They've got this really cool new range called uh, called Snooze Fest. So if you're kind of a bit of a lazy bastard like me and you want some badass new black threads to wear around the house and just lounge about in, they've got a new range dedicated specifically to that. There's loads of great stuff, pretty much every single thing you could pretty much imagine wanting to put in your house, put on your body, but anywhere you like, they've got it all there and it all looks awesome so go over to killstar.com right now and you can even get 20% off uh certain stuff with a deal that they've got going on right now i noticed there when i was when i was on there today so go over to killstar.com right now and check out the latest range and now this week's episode really is a biggie it's one of the biggest guests we've ever had on the show jason newstead metallica legend conducted a two-hour interview with Stephen Hill last week. Stephen Hill, regular presenter here on the podcast uh, and, of course, regular contributor to Melt Hammer magazine. In fact, it wasn't even last week. It was literally about two or three days ago that Steve did this interview with Jason. Uh, and we originally planned it to be for a big feature that's going to run in the magazine in a few issues' time. But it was such great stuff, and it went so long that we just thought, you know what? We're also going to cut a great big chunk out of this and put it on the podcast this week. And if you think that means you're just getting shitty little offcuts to the main interview... Absolutely not. There's some big, big stuff that we go through with Jason for the show this week. Uh, we talked to Jason Newstead about his reaction to hearing James and Lars pretty much cutting his base out of Unjustice for All. Very, very controversial moment in metal history. We talked to him about that. Uh, we talked to Jason about the Black Album, of course. Lots of Black Album celebrations going on at the moment. So we talked to him about that. And uh, we talked to him about what... Uh, Black Album producer Bob Rock taught him about how less can be more, about how he helps him get the best tone out of the band. Uh, loads of stuff along that kind of line. Uh, Jason talks about how he coped with being made a multi-millionaire with just one album. Not an easy thing to anyone to navigate and he had to do that. Uh, we talked to Jason about loads, one of my favourite Metallica albums, so underrated. We talked to Jason about how people reacted to that whole era of the band, how they gave Metallica loads of shit for changing up their image and cutting their hair and all the rest of that. Uh, Jason even talks about how he thinks that he may have actually accidentally inspired the other members of Metallica to switch up their style and cut their hair in the first place. Uh, we talked to Jason about other projects that he got involved in with the 90s, the projects that he wasn't able to get involved with in the 90s. I'm talking about projects with Devin Townsend. I'm talking about almost singing with Sepulchre 
Futura. Could you imagine that? How badass that would have sounded. Uh, so we go into all of that. We also go into the roots of his eventual departure from Metallica. And we talked about why his growing love of experimental music in the 90s and beyond began to really affect his enjoyment of playing certain Metallica songs live. So it's all in there. There's more stuff than that that we haven't even got into for the podcast section of the interview. You'll read about that in a future issue of Metal Hammer. But for now... I'm going to hand you over to Steve, who was uh, talking to Jason earlier this week. And we drop in right as around Steve uh, brings up the whole shebang about the base loss in Injustice for All. Let's do it. Hearing the mixes for Injustice for All for the first time, um, what was that like for you? How did you feel when you kind of heard what the record was going to feel about it? And I was also going to ask you the, these, um, these kind of Injustice for Jason projects that have been popping up on the internet over the last few years uh what, what's your what's your thoughts on on those i love people <laughs> I, yeah. I love i love people's enthusiasm i love their determination and their loyalty and their love and their appreciation you know um if if the justice album would be a mix like a regular record normal any kind of record um we wouldn't be talking about it right now it would have it would have did what it did and we still would say it sells a couple thousand copies a year or month a week whatever and it does does its thing and it just sounds like it sounds and there you go and we wouldn't even 30 years later be going whatever that was that album that happened then but because the way it all came out and it became such a fucking unnecessary big deal um we're st still talking about it again so i think it was brilliance they didn't even realize how fucking brilliant they were in their drunk stupor to do what they did. And now that it's become um, the best garage band album ever. So Black Keys, White Stripes, uh, Flat Duo Jets, the different power duos of garage stuff. Mm. Lars and James were the original garage band duo <laughs> as far as that goes. They always made the records that way. From No Life to Leather, it was Lars and James, guitar and drums, on the original No Life to Leather cassette, if you've happened to ever see a real copy or a photo of a copy. In Lars's handwriting, in ink pen, on the label of the cassette, turn bass down on stereo. Wow. Hello. <laughs> I'm no life to leather. <laughs> yeah. They mixed it how it was supposed to be mixed. Anybody would mix and then there's the bass and there's the guitar and this thing from all the way back, just like some dude did for them. But Lars didn't want because it messed with his drums somehow. So when he sends the demo out to uh, wherever the fucking combat records and whatever, turn the bass down before you listen to this. Before you even get it going, just turn the bass down right from the get-go. Before you even start. That's where he has been his whole goddamn life. So why would it be any different when it came to that? They made Kill Em All that way. They made Ride that way. They made Master that way. They made it, 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 it. All of those two guys in a room. Baka, 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 buka, buka, say over and over and over again. That's the way it always happened. Okay. The most successful metal band of all time. Mm -hmm. You know, so you argue with this shit. I'm not really sure. But back then, I was fucking livid. Are you kidding me? I, I was I was ready for throats, man. No, I was out of my head because I really thought I did well. I thought that I played how I was supposed to play, you know? 
But once again, if you knew then what you know now, um, up until that point, even with Metallica, I had only ever played one take on the bass, no matter how long the song is, I'm playing it from top to bottom. I'm not piecing it together, no one do the choruses. I'm playing the fucking, I'm executing. I'm performing the song and you're going to record it. Warts and all, the human factor, that's what matters, right? Mm. Flotsam dogs demos, flotsam demos, flotsam albums, garage days re-revisited. Okay, first recordings with Metallica. Bass goes. Cool, we got this right. So why would I think anything different? Trust those guys with the mix. It's all good. Play that slamming bass. Good deal. Let them go do it. Right? Why would I think anything else? I went into the went to the studio for Injustice. Toby Wright is there, assistant, recordist, whatever he was at the time, engineer. Okay, Jay, we're doing that one. Go, red light. Okay, now we're doing that one. Red light. Three songs that day. Come back and go lay down Hollywood. Come back in the morning. Three more. Okay, do that for three and a half days. Album's done. Drive back to San Francisco. Done. Just like any, so that was a long time. I had three and a half days to do nine songs. And Flotsam, I did all the songs in one day. So it's like, you know. That's what I used to. You plug it in, you turn me on, I play the fucker, I'm done. That's it. I didn't know any better. So slow down, speed up, do that different, hit that there, go with the drums. I had no idea what the fuck any of that was at all. Play the bass part. Be the part where it just goes do do like ACDC, where it goes do 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 the whole time. And the guitars go up on the top of it. And the bass just rides down there, that concrete just riding down there. I never knew that, dude. Flotsam, I write the songs on bass. The guitar players cover, cover the riff that I played on bass, and it becomes this one-dimensional thing. It goes, I didn't know about underneath the guitars. No fucking idea. No idea what that would mean until I met Bob Rock. Until the dude go do, 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 and watch your bass become something and watch the guitars become something different because you're not competing with each other anymore because that's what it comes down to. I'm playing Lemmy sounding bass, ding, da, ding, da, ding, da, ding. Like a guitar player, even though I wasn't ever a guitar player, I always started on bass, right? From the get-go. I took those things off my little guitar and made the bass from right from the start, and I always played bass. I wasn't a guitar player that became a bass player. Mm. Just bass, 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 bass. I didn't know what the bass part was until 15 years ago, 20 years ago, something like that, when I, when yeah. I realized go record with other people, record with Government Mule, record with some of those guys. Dude, just lay it down for a minute. Fuck, I'm, I want to play everything you're playing. No, that's not how it goes. So coming in with a guitar sounds like dega 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 and the bass sounds like dega dega dega. Who's gonna win? The guy that wrote the song. You know? Mm. And in any band, if you've played in bands, I don't know, but if you listen to proper, you know, productions, I'm sure your audio file. So mm -hmm. you listen to certain stuff and you get, huh. I wonder who mixed this record. You know, since the hi-hat is louder than the lead vocal, my guess is it's the drummer. <laughs> yeah. It's that kind of shit. You know, it's a human nature type of thing, right? Yeah. When you watch a video back of yourself, say you and four of your guys are, are playing whatever sport that you're playing, football, soccer, whatever you're doing, okay? And then you watch that video of two minutes of you guys doing your thing, exchange at Bali or whatever they call it. And um, what's it called? Scrum? What's it called when you're... 
in rugby, yeah, scrum, yeah. Yeah, so you do it for a couple of minutes and you do your thing. The first three times you watch that video, you're watching yourself the whole time. The fourth time you watch your favorite other teammate. Fifth time you start watching the team. And another sixth time you watch the whole video. Okay, same thing with the band. The best tool for any band in the world to try to improve is video camera. So you don't argue amongst each other. You film the fucking thing. Everybody takes their own copy home. Just what I just explained. Your own worst critic from the get-go. You watch yourself a bunch of times. What am I doing? Why am I sticking my tongue around? What the fuck is that all about? I didn't know that looked like that. Oh, shit. I got to stop that. You got to stop that. Right? Instead of somebody else in the band going, dude, will you stop with the tongue? And then a bash happens and the band breaks up. That kind of stupid shit. Give everybody a videotape. The band will be way better the whole time. Every fifth rehearsal, give everybody a videotape. You'll see that there's going to be a lot less of that stupid, quirky shit that goes on. You know, I don't know how I got to this place, but I was talking about, <laughs> talking about mixing records and who takes control of it and all that stuff. But that, the yeah. point was, when you're listening to your own self, you want your own self louder. When you're watching your own self on video, you're going to pay attention to yourself first. It's human nature. Mm, yeah, of course. Um, you mentioned Bob Rock there. I was going to ask you what your, I mean, 30 years of Black Album is mad to me that that time has gone that quickly. And I mean, I'm sure you feel the same. We've got to this bit where we're, we're talking about the Black Album now. Um what was your personal relationship with Bob Rock like? Because I know um, he had said he felt like he'd been ignored for about three months. I've seen the documentary, the classic album documentary. But um, during that, you also said when Bob came in, bass frequencies came in. Did you feel like you had a kind of ally with Bob being in the studio um, to kind of accentuate, you know, like to, so that the, the thing that happened on Justice wasn't going to happen again? I don't think it was like a personal ally deal um i don't think that he i had earned i don't know if i ever did uh earned his respect like um he did already have for james and lars because of their accomplishment or because they were running the show and they're right signing the check or whatever um so i'm not really sure though but as far i would describe it in the way that he was he is and especially then really firing on all cylinders a younger man his ears were still fresh he was still had still a little bit of juice, still a little bit of fire. And uh, he'd come off a couple of really, really hugely successful uh, selling records, but also sounding records, successfully sounding records, you know? And they had nice, thick bass frequencies, real smooth, concrete, embracing the band and holding it up and doing what a bass is supposed to do. So whether uh, Slippery When Wet was my favorite, Evangelo was my favorite band, they were not. But the production was still really nice to listen to. And I know the difference by then. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so um, when like Dr. Feelgood sounds fucking awesome and, and Mickey's playing Spectre bass, man, through Ampeg, hello. And it just go, you know, that's what it's supposed to fucking sound like. And I'm going, OK, so I don't know if I was would call it an ally in the way like, hey, you're my bro. And we listen to the same records or that kind of stuff. But it was a thing where he knew what the fuck he was doing. He knew what the fuck he was doing. He set me up for success. I had been in it for long enough to know what to do, finally, to throw that shit down. Now, I played kind of squirrely-ass shit in the beginning, trying to find a way to get his attention or respect, you know, bring in a tenth of my bass collection, you know, like 25 basses, and, uh, and say, let's try this one or this one or this one or this one, not real i just like trying to show off and take it because you had that cool instrument you're a better player which is exactly the opposite of the truth 
So any any bad motherfucker. How many guitars does Willie Nelson have? How many? Uh, this many. One. one. This many. One. Wow. I didn't <laughs> you know, know. That's amazing. Eddie Van, Eddie Van Halen, when, when he was really doing his thing, he had three guitars, right? He had the one main one and two backups before he did Music Man and all that shit. Mm. But you just think about that kind of thing. You know, you only really need one good one. Yeah. And you have a backup or something clapped and whoever over time, that guitar, that guitar. So I thought, you know, if you have more, the more gear you got, the better of a player you are. And that it was in that place because the previous 20 months, uh, we all became multimillionaires. I mean, what the fuck? You know, so that 25 year old, 26 year old, 27 year old kid, they used to live in a fucking thing over there in the dump. And all of a sudden you got that. It's, you know, just human. You're only human. Mm. So you bring it, yeah, dude, let me show off some of my fucking bases. Which one do you think is the coolest one? Well, dude, you could have left all of those at home and brought the real one, which is that 58 Fender P base and that fucking Spectre right there, right? The other stuff, can it's not firewood, but take it home. And it was all real nice instruments, but they ain't going to do shit for us. And he just set me he just set me straight. That's not what it's about, showing off your instruments, dude. There's a time and a place for that. This ain't now. You know, that, that ain't now, this ain't that, that type of thing. You know, so we figured out that he knew better. He knew that that P bass was the most malleable one. You can get any sound out of it you want and make it work with any guitar sound you have, you know? Mm -hmm. And I started messing with multi-string, you know, like doing the five-string. Yeah, yeah. So he, he supported me in the way of tough love, kind of. Like, you know, he was already... He already had five or six kids by that time when we, none of us, any of us had kids yet, right? And so we were just, he was just adding to his brood. He had all of us to look after, but we were really a bunch of fucking kids, man. We're all, you know that, man. And in this business, you're encouraged to stay 18 for as long as you can and get famous by your antics and get put in jail and to get some kind of press or whatever stupid street cred or some shit like that. You know, that always, that always existed. Anyway, he was, uh, He knew how to capture the sound of me as a pick player, still get the thud and still get the click, still get the aggression, but not get in the way of the guitars, only support the guitars and make them bigger, right? Mm -hmm. He knew how to do that. A lot of people could say those words, but can you actually make that happen, right? So he showed me how to record bass. He taught me about how bass frequencies work. And E note, the big string, one time in 440, goes 18 feet. Okay? 18 feet for an E note, one way. Ooh, drops. Another 18. Ooh, right? So that's why when you're however far from the car going, but <clears throat> a mile away of that car, but the bass frequency is coming to you, right? Because mm -hmm. it's long waves. It only has to do like five skips before it gets to you. If it's the frequency of the symbol, it's going, the waves are like this little fucking little tiny thing. They're never going to make it to you, right? You only hear the, yeah? So he showed me that that's where that wave is going to hit. So we put the SVT right here, and you're going to go flop, and it's going to make that E note, because I mostly just play the big string anyway. The other one's a kind of whatever. And so <laughs> you put that mic, you put that mic, bam, right there where that wave hits, yeah? And then the A string is going to be 11 and a half feet. You put that bam right there. And you put bam right there. And you put those two right up on the speaker. So it goes, fuck. So you want that lemmy part in there. You want the teeth on it. So 
put them right up on the counter. <clears throat> and they blend all those together and it goes, sad but true, you know? Yeah. Nice. So he sh showed me not just somebody saying, oh, we can do this and we can fucking do that and everything. He goes, physically, takes me in there. That's where the mic goes because of this. That's where the mic goes because of that. You're going to slow the fuck down. You're going too fast. You're way ahead of everybody. Calm down. Lay the bass down. Taught me. You know, it gave me the chance to really do it and had patience, patience with me. Not a lot. It had to happen. I mean, a lot less time than anybody else did, but I didn't need more time. Mm, okay. Um, did you have any idea, any of you, that what was going to come out of that was going to be the Black Album? Because it's um, the biggest metal album ever. It is. It is. <laughs> I mean, I, mean I, I, I struggled to wonder if anyone could ever sort of predict that for themselves. But was there any ever point where you were like, fuck, we're sitting on something here? There was, I'm going to keep referring to Sad But True over and over because that really is my highlight of mm. the whole project um, because of the weight, you know. Uh, I knew there were some special things when you listen to him back as a fan, because I was still a fan within the band, you know? And I knew there was something there. I couldn't get my head around like nothing else matters. I knew I knew that it made my hair stand up and everything like that. When you don't have to try to like something, it gives you that shit, you know? Yeah. I knew that that was there, so I knew there was something. It was undeniable, but I just didn't know what would happen with it. I was kind of afraid of it, actually, because I still want, you know? And, but I knew there was a couple things. Sandman, I thought was kind of corny, actually. Um, but it's okay. And it all, it all ended up working out. And the beautiful part was that we played in the room together. You know, we sat and we looked at each other and we laid the shit down. So because of that, we were so close to it and so far in it, you know, we take 70 takes of nothing else matters. And it's like, um, after a while, you know, you're pretty close to it. You can't really hear it. You know, try to get it. How much more fucking delicate can I do that for the seventieth time on real the real tape, bro? That wasn't it. Wasn't Pro Tools yet? Okay, mm. it was still fucking stacks, stacks of tapes. Just nothing else mattered. Drums, stacks, just over and over again. Seven. I think it was actually seventy, seventy-two reels. And how, how much of those reels a piece? Yeah. And there's still in some, there's some salt mine somewhere, literally. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, when it did hit, like it hit, um, I mean, how did you, how did you react to that personally? Because I think there's, there's been a lot of chat over the years and there's kind of stories and stuff about how Lars reacted and about how James reacted. But when the kind of fame and the mania and the, it just kept, the snowball started to roll and get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. What was it like being in the kind of the needle of that tornado? Yeah. Um, I'm going to step back into the other question just a little bit, because I don't think I answered you all the way about when, when we're, when you're so in it like that, it's hard to have an objective view, right? Mm -hmm. So you go to rely on people that you respect their opinions, obviously. So you bring in Torben Ulrich, you bring in Cliff Bernstein, you bring in people that know better. <laughs> right? And uh, and they say, that's the one, that's not the one, that's the one. Or Tor, I'd delete that. You know, that kind of shit, man. That's all real. That's real. And we would listen to them. That's how powerful they were. Or our, yeah. You know, we would listen. And so when Torben would say, sad but true, that, dude, that, that, 
that's the one, that's the one, you know, that kind of thing. We knew, we knew we had something. Um, and we had great confidence in the actual continuity of the record. It sounded so fucking good all the way across the weight of it. Once again, the weight was fantastic. Uh, but we didn't know, you know, it's, it's fucking crazy. I just kind of realized, um, through these interviews the last couple of weeks, our softest song ever, our softest song ever took down the biggest walls to allow our hardest songs ever to penetrate the world. So nothing else matters came. There was already Fade to Black existed. Yes, it did. And Orion and stuff. But Fade to Black at the end, it ain't fucking around. I mean, it gets they get one of the heaviest songs that's ever been made by Metallic at the end of Fade to Black. It's mm. it is incredibly emotional and heavy, like in all ways heavy. Yeah. Mm. Nothing else matters. There's a couple spots. There's that little crescendo up, but it still kind of stays about here. It's pretty safe as things go in Metallica land. Yeah. Yeah. When it was number one in 35 countries in one week, you know, and like seven of those countries we hadn't even been to yet. And it's number one there. Dude, that doesn't fucking happen to a band that goes, die, die most of the time. (laughs) You know, so that song by its appeal for so many people knocked down all these things and the promoters are coming out of the woodwork from all these countries and we'd never been towns and countries we'd never been to before come and play nothing else matters for us oh we'd be happy to what about the other two hours and 20 minutes that we're going to (laughs) do you know it's like give us a shot man let us get in there we'll play that nice song for you but we're also going to play this shit and show you your kids and everybody else what it's really all about why we're who we are you know, yeah. why we're here, why you asked us here, you know? Yeah. So that was, you know, that's answering your question all the way. There is no way we could have known that that soft, nice, personal, personal, personal song, so hugely personal song, uh, would be that pivotal for our career and the career of heavy music mm-hmm. for so many others. The festivals that go on now and the things that go on, the millions of bands, millions of bands that have been influenced by that band by way of that song knocking down the barriers crazy who'd ever thunk yeah be able to do it with a soft song yeah was there a moment during that kind of black album cycle at any point that you can remember where you were like this has just never happened to a band like this ever is there one moment where you sort of stood there and went this doesn't feel real it feels like a a movie or something do you know because there must have been plenty of times it was mostly surreal. You know, some of the stuff, like you've been to, you know, Rochester, New York, that's the sixth time you've been there. The Dallas is the eighth time. So it's still that, you you know, you're familiar with the territory, but the feeling and the appeal that you had when you played 3,000 seats last time you came to, now there's 18,000 coming to see you. And it's only two years later. You know, in, in rock world, that's a blip. That's a blip because if you go on a cycle, you got the album, you go on a cycle, and then three years later, and then the thing's done, it's time to go make another record. So there are already that many people, like how many fold over time that was going to come to see the next show? I couldn't, there's no way you could have predicted that. The power of the radio, dude, before internet, once again, and all that stuff, yeah. the power of the radio when it really still mattered, you know? And so um, we all got caught in a little bit 
to, you know, pretty impossible not to with every fucker that comes up to you in every dialect, color, size, shape, girls, boys, fucking, you know, uh, ex executives and shit. Dude, fucking yeah, man, dude, you guys, yeah. How can you just a person like that? And you know, yeah, we are, I guess. Oh, actually, yeah, we really are that cool, huh? You know, that type of shit creeping you. And it took all of us got it at one time or another. Oh, a time where a collective where we all had it going and then we all kind of pieced off in our own ways and some of it stuck to others for longer and stuff like that but it was nearly impossible well, it was it was impossible impossible um to not want to show off a bit to mm -hmm. not want to buy your mama house to not want to you know what i'm saying like yeah. the natural things that come to you that you dream only dream of we're speaking of surreality here so things that you could only dream of that you were actually able to do for people that you loved. That was when I realized we are on to something. You know, when you come back after working really fucking hard, though those couple of years, dude, probably I would say the first 18 months of the Black Album release, I was home for man, 20 days in 18 months. You know, mm -hmm. with like a new fresh girlfriend, that just that shit don't work, man. You know, that's really a lot to ask for somebody. And that has to come before everything else. Nothing can come before it, no matter what. Grandma dies. Send her some flowers. You can't, you, you know, you're in the middle of fucking Timbuktu. You can't make it back. Mm. People don't realize the demand that goes on when you're such a gigantic entity. You know, mm. four faces, four dudes, like punks. Like 10, 10 music lessons between this and still manage to do that. With this, with the determination and shit, you know what I mean? There's how many thousands of people that have been our support system through the years, you know? There's no way that we would have had the confidence, gumption, tenacity, any of that, if we didn't have the team in place that we had. From the carpenter on the crew to the sound guy and everybody in between, the truckers, the busters, all those people, the people in the management, the people in journalism, the people selling records at the record store, because that still happened then, and selling mm -hmm. CDs. That's why we did make money is because CDs actually sold back then still. You know, we were in the that pocket of time that we ruled was fucking amazing, but it was the last time for it. It's yeah. not going to happen. It won't happen again. It's not possible. The demographics of 12 to 22-year-old, mostly male persons across the globe at that time for us, so, so many of them, and we tapped into it, and that's why it became what it became. If it would have been another blip of time, not guaranteed it could have sold like it did or anything. It just mm -hmm. happened that way. So it took tasting it and feeling it and being so tired from it to realize what it was really worth, you know? Yeah. Not just money, not just money. Mm. Okay. Um, I really want to ask you about load and reload. For me, okay. load is probably the most underrated album by a big band ever made. I wow. love it. It's sure. a 10 out of 10 perfect record in my, in my view. I love it. I love it with, I, I, I defend it like a, 
like a mother would defend its newborn child. I absolutely love it. I can't, I can't even explain to you, Jason. What do you mean, mate? How much I love those. It is fucking brilliant. Um, that period, um, uh, the kickback, I think like everyone loves metal, but there's a lot of dogma attached to metal. And the haircutting thing, the way that you guys are presenting yourselves at that point, was it like, did you ever sort of, hear about any of this stuff or were you aware of how people in slayer t-shirts were kind of grizzling because you'd cut your hair and you know a couple of you were wearing a bit of eyeliner i mean i think you look cool like, i love depeche mode and you're like heavy metal depeche mode and that's fucking fine with me man but um, <laughs> <laughs> but that that's a it's just a weird a weird reason to not like a record because people have cut their hair people are so finicky um i very honestly never gave it one thought uh <laughs> I, saw, I saw it go by but just dude i mean come on did we come up with something legitimately <laughs> something you know and i i couldn't really be included in that deal because i come here in 1992 and mm -hmm. so those guys didn't do it till 96 and it's like i was already we got the mohawk freaking you know skin i mean all the way skin i did crazy shit from 92 to 96 man so that was mine was already off by the time they took theirs off <laughs> you know what's really kind of funny dude between me and you and everybody else is gonna hear this um when we start getting to go to more countries you end up doing maybe 45 or 50 countries i guess together and uh as the borders started getting a little squirrelier right um and those guys all still had their shaggy yeah and I was like slick and sometimes even like, you know, just nice, like freaking nice, like, like, like a cop or something. Right. <laughs> and, uh, I just cruise right through customs, bro. Like just cruise right into nothing. Just right this way, Mr. Duty, you know, like this kind of shit. And those fuckers would get left and right. And James and they get pulled all the goddamn time. Lars would get pulled a lot because yeah. he always looks so fucking tired. And he often, I mean, he, when he goes, when he decides to go, dude, He'd take down a gallon, you know, he'll take down, he'd, he'd be all fucking way swolled and fucking sweaty the next 30 hours. All fucked up. Cause he goes hard, man. Danish blood, man. He goes hard, but we're going for it. We're going for it. You know, he really, he does that thing. So when you have that kind of look on you going through the airport, they're thinking maybe you swallowed something. Maybe you're trying to hide something from me. You, know, you put something up your ass and it broke or something like that. Why are you so sweaty and clammy and shit? You know? And so they'd, they'd pull him <laughs> and I'd walk right on through, you know, and I'd see my buddy up along the way and he'd have my spliff. And he'd be like, <laughs> so it's, I think that there is some kind of thing within, I don't know for sure, maybe you can ask them or whatever, but after a while they saw just how it was easy to do. And like I started dating models and, you know, playboy girl and different stuff. And they were going, what the fuck? You know, and finally you start seeing coming back and back, and going, yeah, like this and like this. So they did the thing. I don't know if you remember that or not. So I did my shave thing for a while, right? The new stid, the sides clean, right? Mm. Did that for a while, and then James slowly did it. So he had them too, and then Kirk slowly did. So they both did it. So all three of us had that at one point, right? And I'm like, huh, okay. So the next thing, a couple years later, take it all off, and a couple years later, they take it all off. I don't know. I don't know. There's something to it, I think. Yeah. 
It's funny as well because, I mean, I don't know if you were aware of this reputation that you had around the time, but I think even um, I think even the people who were a bit like, oh, Metallica have cut their hair and they're not a thrash band anymore and like all that crap. Weaker. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you always seem to get a pass, I think. People were like, one, well, you know, Jason's still a headbanger. And I think, you know, because you were talking about Sepultura and, you know, like kind of you still clearly cared about metal and was interested in metal. Um, uh, how much did you know about that kind of rep you had with people and how do you kind of feel about it now when you, when you think about that? I was so engulfed, immersed in music in those years. Um, I built my record and music collection to it's, it's fucking beautiful, man. Mm. And over time, you know, I invite all those players that I looked up to, to play music with me. And, you know, when, once I built the chop house in 1992, um, it opened up a whole world to me aside from Metallica, um, to play with all players of all styles, but especially, you know, like we had a lot of sessions with machine head guys and Exodus and, you know, man, all everybody from, from there, we're throwing down. We had all kinds of metal fun, you know, and often we would jump off the metal wagon and try to see how far we could go on other places you know, play different kind of music and stuff with the same kind of, you know, but Sepultura guys became so close with them and everything. And I was just so hungry to learn more as much as I could about music of all styles and people invent their own instruments and sing in different languages and, all that stuff meant to see if I pour as much of this good stuff in, then what's going to pour out of me, you know? And I still have to that, to this day, I still go by that mm. and it works. Um, so it was important to me to stay true to my roots in that way. And yes, I was conscious of, uh, of that flying that flag um, very um, loyally. Uh, it was it was a real thing, you know, a true, true fan of Sepultura in that time. They were my very favorite band going through those years right there. And uh, there was nothing put on, man. That was the genuine article right there. It was very important to me to keep the metal in Metallica. Mm -hmm. Well, it's funny, actually, because I went upstairs into my loft earlier and I've got every magazine I've ever bought up there. And I found an old metal hammer from February 1998. And it's got a quote from you in there. I hope you don't mind me bringing up quotes from 23 years ago. But you said, like if, I, if, you, if I didn't have this little Metallica thing, then I would have been singing with Sepultura six months ago. Andrews is one of my favorite people on the planet. If there was ever a time I could do that, I would. And obviously they just got Derek in at that point. I mean, how real, how close would that have been to being a, a thing? You getting in on Sepultura, do you think? I don't think that would be any kind of reality. I think it's yeah. like we, you know, we do record a couple songs together and have some hours of jams together and have the fun with it and not taking it too seriously. Um, because of their origins and the way they roll, uh, they're tougher and rougher than me by quite a measure. And I don't think I probably could have hung with them. Mm. Uh, you know, I could do a few songs with them and I can do my shit and I can do my metal vocal and all that. I, I still can. I don't prefer to. I like to sing actual singing now, but. Mm. Um, the uh at the time i was really into that kind of vocal the projects i was doing the chop house with you know devin Townsend and those kind of cats it was always you know very much that and i could pull off a half an hour with several tour at a time but i couldn't be their singer like that for a real front man for them they need to be somebody big and bad as fuck like derek you know yeah. he's a bad motherfucker man he is yeah he is. And he's a great guy 
just great, great guy, man. Great yeah. Guy. Um, I might ask you about a couple of other things you did during that period as well. Um, Uncle Science Fiction is a record that I absolutely have loved again for years and years and years. Um, the Knock is a great song on a great record. I love James Lavelle, and he got Mike D from the Beasties on it as well. How cool was that getting to do that project as well? I'm getting covered with bumps again. Um, it was uh, it was it was otherworldly that one truly because uh, I because I was stepping into a different planet. And uh, I had already had Shadow in the you know the introducing record, and I fucking loved it. And um, he reached out just out of the goddamn blue, dude. You want to come play some bass with Wawa on on my record? The time you want me there, man. You know there was no anything like fuck what time. And I went down there. I took my Wawa and I took my shit, and you know, and I got I set myself up and I'm a theremin. And uh, he's like, wow, dude, I was playing. I had Theramo, the pitch corrector, going through the spinning 400 watt spinning mess, makes a boogie speaker. So it's throwing it all around the room. Yeah, well, you. you know, fucking cosmic shit. And he's, he's like, how do we get, how do we capture that shit? You know, because you have to put mics all over the room to make it go. Um, but when you're standing there, it's fucking amazing. So I did some of that and I hooked up the Wawa and he would put the thing, you know, he had his turntables over here and he had his crate full of records. And he got got up there and got his thing going. Do all the thing. I'm like, okay, okay, this is the first for me, baby. Okay, so just give me a second. And get that beat going. Dude got the thing going. James is there and, it, and all that music sound. All right, okay. And trying to build a voice. Like, what made that sound? What made that sound? Is that a electric tuba? Is that a what the fuck is that? The trip between the theorem and, and the wah-wah bass all fucked up. I was trying to create these textures that he would be able to manipulate because that's the whole key, right? Mm. All he's looking for is me to give him source material that he can twist the fuck up. And so that's what I try to do on my best for a couple hours. We smoked out. We did our thing. James, you know, likes to smoke a bit. So we did our thing and I just went for it for a couple hours. He goes, dude, that's all I need. And then they sent me the tapes a few weeks later. And I go, what the fuck? Because we were just going for a jam, and they organized that into that opus. You know, it was pretty, pretty special. But I didn't. Mike D and I were not in the same room at the same time. So yeah. it was just, yeah, it was just uh, Josh and I and um, and James. Yeah, it's yeah. an amazing record, though. Yeah. It was a very special time for me, and I was honored to be asked to do it. Because once again, I didn't. It wasn't uh, solicited or anything. You know, it just it just came out of respect, and that's the best kind of call. Mm, yeah um uh the uh the irate project with devin as well um which i think became became physicist the devin townsend record i believe um is that right he used a bunch of stuff i'm so i'm led to believe i yeah. heard that i know oh right not, not heard the album or not heard that i know i don't I haven't heard the album and i didn't know that he used any of our material well, I, apparently that's what a lot of it is based on. So I'm un, under the imp understanding, yeah. Really? Yeah. That's fantastic. I will, I will ask him about that one day. Yeah, it's full-blown. I mean, it's basically a Devin Townsend album with Strapping Young Lad as his backing band, but he's called it a Devin album. And I, wow. um, I mean, from I remember hearing about this and being like, oh, this will be great, right? Like, you know, you and Devin playing together. Um, 
but I understand that caused a bit of tension from what I've read um, with the other guys in Metallica. Um, was this around the time where it started to get a bit, you know, like you need to kind of curb the, the extracurricular activities a little bit? This was the very origins. This mm. was the very initial swing. Um, I just established the Chop House. Uh, we, like I said before, we completed it in 92. And by the time 94 came around, we had the gear in there that we wanted and had a pretty good handle on it, capture the shit in the room. And so Devin came down, he was all 22 years old and absolute fucking maniac. Dude, hour and a half of sleep a day for a week on end. I just, holy shit. I mean, I thought I was powerhole, powerhouse, energy ball guy. Mm. I still had to take a couple naps with Devin. It's like, wow, dude, fucking hell. And then every time he reached for something, you know, you thought he was just going to do it. And he goes, dude, what the hell? Where did that come from? You know, you could do a backflip while he's playing shit that Steve Vai wishes he could play. You know, this is crazy, man. Crazy, crazy. Even back then. It's a mad genius from the get-go. Um, so that was the first real project that we took time to record and track and everything in the chop house. Uh, Tom hunting on drums and playing lefty. And Devin crushing it. And he, I didn't know that Devin could sing yet. I went, I didn't even, I just walked in there and went, and did that shit, <laughs> not knowing his absolute genius with vocal, right? So he just let me do it. And he kind of giggled in the corner and stuff, but he never came, he never said, let me sing. He just, I just did it. And so that's what came from those three or four songs or whatever we put on there. And I still love it. It was 1994. And I think it still stands up too. I think that because it's punk rock, you know, you got to realize it's just, that's drums and bass in one take. Uh, with a rhythm guitar in one take, uh, Devin do a solo over the top. I go and scream the vocal one time, done. So very much a raw production, you know, but it was an incredible accomplishment and feeling of accomplishment for me because I'd always want to have my own real studio, not just a little jam room, you know, for the tape machine, but a real proper studio soundproof floating room and everything like that. And so that was the first time and the first real players that we applied hours and hours to a recording. Um, I didn't know any better. It was like how many ever projects I ever made before and would send out and have fun with. And uh, the guys got wind of it. And Lars said, you need to come up to the house. I'm like, what? I didn't really know what it was for. So I took my bass over and stuff. I came to the door with my bass over my shoulder. What's up, guys? Dude, come in here. Okay, you're Metallica now. You know that, right? Well, yeah. Um, you can't just be making music and sending out tapes to whoever fucker with whatever fucker. That doesn't, you just, that doesn't, you can't do that anymore. You understand that, right? I'm like, oh. <laughs> I didn't fucking know, man. I didn't realize the thing and the thing and the politics and the thing. I just sharing some metal with my friends. I didn't know what the fuck. So it was a big deal. And I remember, uh, yeah, I pretty much broke down on that day. And it was just James, Lars, and I. And I kind of, okay, do okay, you guys. Fuck, okay, okay, okay. Ain't gonna do it again. We'll do it again. We'll do it again. Well, it won't happen again until it happened again. But, uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> that was the first one. That was the first, that was the first. Uh, well, well, again, um, there's a quote from this interview that I found earlier. I'm wondering what you make will make of, of this. Um, you were asked in the feature if you felt creatively satisfied with your role in Metallica. And this is what you said. You just said, nope. 
my stuff is too wacky now. I'm listening to so many kinds of music. I'm into hybrids of combinations of players together to make music of my own. It's just too wacky for Metallica. If I can get a few riffs on a Metallica record, well, that's great for me, but it's not live and die anymore. Um, do you kind of recognize that guy? I'm proud of myself. That's yeah. perfect. Absolutely. That's what, that is what still is real for me. You mm. know, when it was pretty early through the nineties there, I think by the time the black album was, the tour was done and we had some money to count and some days to rest. Um, yeah, that, that flipped my, I went on a totally different direction. I was so like, I like playing the songs and I can get, I can raise myself up to perform the songs for the people and give it all I got. But enter Sandman for the 3,000th time in a certain amount of days is just kind of, you know, it fucking wears on you. And, and uh, to, you know, right now, man, if if I, like that last weekend when I played with the Chop House Band, I've got, fuck, I've got dozens of new songs that we're working on all the time of all different instrumentation and shit. And if I am, if I got to sit on one for too long now, I, I go fucking crazy. And like, we got to move on, guys. We have 45 minutes on those. I'm, let's move on. I can't, you know what I mean? And I'm ready to perform again and everything like that, but I can't do that thing anymore. I can't just do like that Broadway show where it's the same, 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 same. And that's what I thought was my advantage and my being able to harness and manage the balance. I wanted to be that person that I knew myself to be on and off the stage with Metallica. When people saw me, they knew they were getting everything I had left, every fucking ounce of sweat on the stage, right? And every time I knew that. The way I was able to continue to do that was by playing the wacky music with my friends. It kept me cleansed. It kept me strong. It kept me interested in music. If I only had that one dimensional part of music, I don't think I would have, I mean, I would have called it a long, long time ago. Mm. But I kept myself healthy by playing with all kinds of people, just like I still do to this day, like I will tonight and tomorrow. And so it's, uh, I know that I'm not alone in that. And there's so many people that are my heroes that do the same thing. And still Neil Young, you know, still to this day, Tom York, um, Shadow, James, any of them, you know, James LaBelle is still, you know, still seeking out other things. I know I can play the metal. I climbed that mountain, the tallest one. I can do that shit. You know, tell me what time you want me to throw down. I can throw down that stuff anytime. But I am not satisfied with just that. I haven't been for a long, long time. All right, that is it from Steve and Jason for now. As I mentioned at the top of the show, there'll be much more from Jason Newstead in an upcoming issue of Metal Hammer. And uh, you know what? There was so much great stuff in that interview that I suspect we may use more of it for the podcast down the line as well. So watch out for all of that. In the meantime, go to tinyurl.com slash gethammer to pick up your latest issue of the magazine starring the one and only Iron Maiden. You can get it in stores across the UK right now as well. And don't forget to go to killstar.com to check out all their awesome latest ranges. We will see you on the Metal Hammer podcast next week where we will be, in fact, reviewing the brand new album from Iron Maiden. It's the big review. It's Senjutsu. It doesn't get much bigger than that. So we'll see you right here on the Metal Hammer podcast next week. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs> Oh! <laughs>